Welcome to your October 2011 edition of Voices of Experience. I'm your host, Brian Walter. And for the next 10 months, we're going to explore, debate, scrutinize, unpack, repack, comment on, occasionally mock, and continuously celebrate the art and business of speaking professionally. We're also extending the value of VOE by continuing the conversation. It's easy. Just go to NSA VUE on Facebook, click like, and then post questions and comments about the programs that we've uploaded there. So let's get to it. And now here's the question all of us need to ask ourselves. Who wants to be a speaker millionaire? We are with Tom Searcy. Basically, you just say he's a sales stud. But technically, if you want to go on his website, it would say something like he is the foremost expert on large account sales. Here's a claim on his website that I thought, wow, this is about as credible as you could possibly get. Five billion in closed new account sales using his system in the last seven years. All right, Tom, one thing to clarify, five billion in closed sales. Is that five billion for you or for your clients? Honestly, if it was five billion for me, I would not be sitting here with you. Okay, so but your clients have used your system closed five billion with a B in the last seven years. Yeah, that's absolutely right. As a matter of fact, we go back and survey all of our accounts and the people who have used our systems over time, and that's how we come to the five billion. And it's all been new accounts. Uh, these are accounts that are ten to twenty times the size of their average accounts, and so it's a completely different process, different people, different approach than just your standard good, strong sales skill sets that people have out there. So that's what we focus on. Tom, you should work on commission. That's all I'm saying. If <laughs> you worked on commission, that would be amazing here. All right, now you are part of a new group with NSA called Million Dollar Speakers. Now, my understanding of what that is is those who, their speaking business, their speaking enterprise, where speaking is a key part of it, they have grown that up to at least a million dollars. And of course, there's more who've done that several multiples of that. You are in this august group, yes? Absolutely. We want you to spill, baby. <laughs> we want <laughs> we want to know the details because that is kind of a, a key benchmark measurement when you say, you know, when I've hit a million dollars, I'll know I, I really got something going on. Now, I'm guessing that you, at a certain part, you were a speaker and you were not making a million dollars worth your enterprise. So you took certain steps, certain shifts, certain things or mindsets or tactics that allowed you to get there. Take us on that journey. Go. Absolutely. You know, the first step in that entire process is to understand that companies don't hire you to speak. I mean, we are under this huge dream sense that people just want to listen to us talk for an hour, an hour and a half, two hours. And the fact of the matter is they want to be motivated and they want to have an entertaining environment. All that's true. But really, people hire you and they spend adult money to hire you to change outcomes, business outcomes that they have, or even personal outcomes that they have in the people that are attending those speeches, the people that in the organization with which you are working, they want to see those outcomes shift. And the bigger the needle, as far as the outcome is that they need to shift, the more they'll pay for that. Second thing that the, I, took me a while to kind of figure out is, is that one event does not truly shift the outcome of any one person or any one company. I mean, there's moments, there's seminal moments we all remember in our lives where we go, wow, I heard that speaker and it really transformed me. But for most people, it is the sustained change requiring sustained energy equation, which really causes things to make a big difference in, in your life, in your business, in your career. And so it was our job in creating products and systems 
systems to create that sustained change, sustained inspiration, which then fueled us having engagements that would last more than just one speech or a series of speeches, but actually it would be speeches and products and programs and training integrated all together with this baseline idea. What is the outcome that you, Mr. Customer, are trying to get changed for yourself, for your company, or for individuals who are attending these kinds of sessions? All right, so it is a a complex, multi-service, multi-product thing that you provide that gets you to that million-dollar level. Right. And, and inside of that, again, starting with the outcome only. For, for us, we tell people that the outcome we're trying to change is that uh, uh, companies hire us to double their double, to double the speed with which they double the size of their company through landing sales that are 10 to 20 times the size of their average sale. Now, it could be anybody. I mean, when you talk about things like motivation or collaboration or inspiration, there has to be some outcome besides just getting people motivated. But what are we really trying to shift or change? change. And if if a, a person is a motivational speaker, we've got lots of great motivational speakers that are part of NSA, then the attitude has to be is, is how do we continue to stimulate and inspire people over a sustained period of time that they take that core message from that speech, but then they drive that through all their behaviors and their actions that, that then create the outcomes that companies hire us for. And that's how you move from being a $10,000 or a $20,000 or a $2,000 keynote speaker into being a real value provider for a company. And that's what really transformed our business from being you know, uh, one speech or one workshop or potentially a training class into a million dollar, multi-million dollar uh, business that we have for Hunt Big Sales now. All right, I wanna back up to one thing that I heard you say uh, earlier that I just thought was very powerful and it's what I call a single sentence summary. When you said, here's what we do, or here's what our value we do, and then you went into your double-double thing. So give me that double-double line again, because that was powerful stuff. So the way that we frame this is that we say companies hire us when they want to double the speed with which they double the size of their company, or they want to double the size of their average sale, or they want help being navigated through the biggest deal in the history of their company by someone who has done hundreds of those multi-million dollar deals. So in one sentence, granted a run-on sentence, you know, with a couple ellipses some and commas. some ors, there's yeah, commas, commas in there. In there. Right, right. But still, it's like in in a single sentence summary, you just gave the, the the value that you provide and the outcome that they want. Absolutely. And the nice thing about that is that at the end of that simple sentence, I get to say, are any one of these three outcomes the outcomes that you're looking for? If the answer is no, I can move on. One of the most dangerous things I hear, and you know, walking the convention floor, you hear this every once in a while. Someone will say to a PR company that they're they're in the exhibitors hall, and they'll say, someone says, well, "What do you speak on?" They say, "I speak on anything." And I think to myself, "You have just defined yourself as a hundred thousand dollars speaker. I mean, not in an event. I mean, ever." All right, because the fact of the matter well, is, if that's you, a life lifetime. Yeah, uh, you know, no, you, there's nothing more limiting. Than the fact of the matter is, is they listen. If you need to have a speech, then I'm a guy who speaks. Really, is that true? Well, how lovely. You're not really an expert. You haven't defined yourself as an outcome that you want to change. You have said that, given the opportunity in a microphone in a couple of minutes, you can speak. That is not a million dollar value proposition. That is a very limiting understanding of what people are really paying for. They're paying for outcomes. They're not paying for speeches. So let's talk about, again, how you started layering these things on top of each other. So I'm guessing that you had 
obviously your area of expertise that came from your previous sales experience and prowess that you had before. So you had a point of view content, you had a speech, you had a training class. How did things kind of come together? Started off with consulting, speaking, writing. Consulting, speaking, writing. Yeah. So I was doing some consulting work while I was looking to buy a company or start a company. And I started uh, talking to companies that I knew and CEOs of companies who own companies. They said, look, your background comes from lots of large account sales. Can you teach us how to do that? And so I just went out and started to do some consulting and some speaking along those lines. And I wrote a book uh, with a partner at the time, and it's called Whale Hunting, How to Land Big Sales and Transform Your Company. And so that was the book, and that became the platform for the speech, that became the platform for the training. So we start with primary consulting, just helping people to solve baseline business problems, and moving from that to speaking, to writing, to training. Doing that, the nice thing about it is, is that when you're doing the consulting, you're starting with outcomes, right? Yep. Someone hires you, pays you uh, to fix shift, change, launch, something. It's always a verb. And so you take that verb, you figure out what that is. And I ask speakers, what is the outcome that you try to change? And oftentimes I hear speakers say, well, people like to hear me speak about. And I always want to kind of grab them and pull them back and say, no, wait a minute, you're bigger than that. You're bigger than a speech. You're bigger than a moment of inspiration. You are changing if there's an outcome that will change. I mean, you're shooting darts in the dark, right? I'm going to go out and say really inspirational stuff, and I, I'm going to you know, hope that someone on the outside out there goes ahead and says, oh, you got me. That was exactly what I needed to hear that day. And that's really rewarding on the ego level. But as a financial investment for your buyer, it's, it's, it's not as significant. And then you're kind of a one and done. And one and done is not a way to get to multi-million dollar business. All right, so you've got the consulting and that kind of led to speaking, that kind of training. Is that when the products came in? At each step along the way, a couple of baseline ideas, and I think that I've gotten them from other people. And that is, is the first thing is, is I don't want to create anything once that I can't sell twice. So as I started to work through the consulting, I started to build the product pieces so that I could sell them again and again, not just for my own efficiency, but also to give confidence to my customers that this is something that had been done before and had registered some success. Second thing is, is that I didn't want to write anything that, such as a book or material that would only be um, understandable by one audience. I needed it to, in that same model for the future. The third thing is, is that I wanted to make certain that uh, someone else later on, and not only could we build it once and sell it twice, but we could build it once, sell it twice, and I wouldn't have to be the person who would do the delivery of it. So that set of guidelines um, really helped us starting with consulting and then moving to writing and to training and to, and to the kinds of programs and workshops that we do. Key thing I want to pick up there, you talked about not doing it yourself. Yes. So at what point in this, in this building uh, of this million-dollar enterprise or million-plus enterprise did you make that realization, I can't be the only one delivering this? Was that an early decision you make or you got to the point where you just crazed and then you said, I've just got to do it for sanity? Was that intentional? How did you decide when it wasn't just going to be you, the master deliverer? Well, I would like to say that it's a decision that was made and that it's been rolled out and perfected. It's not. I'm still dealing with some of those issues. But first, starting with the baseline product, right? If I wrote a book or created a video or did a podcast or an audio or a blog, then I would not have to be the person delivering it 
it would it would it would be in stasis, but would able to be delivered by some other medium besides me standing at the front of the podium mm-hmm. uh, and a white and a flip chart. So you uh, multiplied delivering. yourself through vehicles, product, product yes. and vehicles first. First, then the second piece of it was is to create the training programs and to bring in other trainers that I knew. The best source for me was actually clients. These are people who had uh, done the work and were looking to do some things on the side. I, had C- I have CEOs who said, you know, I'd like to really get into the chance of speaking and writing and training and doing some of these things. And I said to them, well, you're very successful the system I've got. Why don't we start there? They loved it. Their answer is, that's great. If you can, if you can help give me, a, you know, a, a chance to do that, I'd love to do that. Now, first, you got to make certain that these are people that are, sure. you know, five out of five as far as speakers. But I had that, I had that visibility to them, mm-hmm. and so that created that opportunity, and that's that's how the business started to progress. But again, it's you know, when I say that, I, it makes it sound like even though I've got, I have had hundreds of customers, right? Mm-hmm. I only have a very small handful who are able to go out into the marketplace and do this delivery. They've got great stories, right? They've got yeah. all their own personal mm-hmm. stories mm-hmm. about the system, which is great, but they don't have great availability. Right? Sure. <laughs> They're running their own company. So I don't have that completely So these are that. CEO slumming by basically working for your company. Thank you, really. I appreciate the way you put that. <laughs> that, that, that feels good. Sure, okay, so it's a uh, part-time exciting uh, role that they get to do. That's right, it's, it's hobby-esque. They're really looking for that idea of significance, Right, mm-hmm. so they've been successful. They're looking for significance. They're using this as a methodology for them to then create their next career. As they sell their businesses or exit out of their businesses, they're looking at that and they're saying, "This looks like a lot of fun and a way to make a difference with other people." Now, here's an interesting thing: we were talking with Shep Hyken, and he did a similar type of thing where I think a lot of successful speakers get to the point and they say, okay, I need to replicate myself and so I'm going to hire junior newbie mini-me person. Here's the junior person and Shep didn't do that and you didn't do that. You're saying, I'm getting high-level people who either are CEOs or senior executives or those who are retired or something that are high-caliber individuals which you're not going to be paying some cheapo fare so that they can truly represent you. That's right. I mean, the thing about my particular product line, I'm certain that other people feel the same way. You know, They want to be careful about their quality and et cetera. Most of mine comes from that C-suite. My background was running four fast-growth companies that went from $10 million in size to 100 to $200 million in size. Each of those did that in less than four years. So it's transformational growth, all right? And if you're going to tell those stories and you're going to discuss and you're going to advise CEOs and their executive teams what to do, you better have done it. So that's in, in my case. they can have the sniff test. They can tell. If you're not one of those people that has that vibe, that's right. you win. And that's why general salespeople don't wind up doing a great job filling those shoes because this is more of an executive position. The second thing is, is that I don't really believe that you can delegate that level of influence by simply saying, okay, we're going to put the Tom stamp on top of somebody and say, okay, now go forth and do likewise if you don't have that background. There's other people that maybe have resolved that particular issue. I haven't resolved it for myself yet. All right, so when you've got these things in place, the thought leadership that you're doing, because you're still the guy when it comes to creating yeah. intellectual thought leadership stuff, so you're churning out the books and the, the models, but now you've got the products, you've got the training, you've got co-presenters or people that are that you, know, that you trust that are going to do a good job here. To get to that million or the multi-million dollar level, is that now just, this is the engine, we just need to scale it up? Or how does it go from, okay, we've got the structure in place to get to the volume? 
Awesome question. I, I would say that I, let's take one step back and and understand that there's a point at which I had to stop running the business at the same time of trying to be the business. All right. So I wound up getting myself a president, someone that I trusted deeply and that understood how to make money and run the day-to-day operational business. And I pulled myself out. I'm not CEO and I'm not president of the business. I am the owner. People find themselves in a position that say, well, you know, don't you have to be all of them? And my answer is, is if you want to grow and you want to grow in this particular kind of space, you're going to be the engine around what? About speaking out in the marketplace, generating the marketing itself, uh, creating the products themselves and, and delivering some of that and et cetera. That's what I'm really good at. And that's what where we say, if you look at Tom's hours, what hours do I get the most dollars for? I get very few dollars for reviewing bookkeeper reports for generating invoices for making certain that all of the travel has been created and the books and materials have been assembled and put in a box and shipped I don't touch any of that I don't want to touch any of that I don't make any money for us if I'm touching any of that there's a there's a statement inside of my organization that says unless Tom is on the mic we ain't making money so on the mic means writing it means talking to someone on the phone or on a teleseminar or on a, some sort of a conference call or uh, at a platform or at a, an association meeting. That's when we're making money, if that's what I'm doing. If I'm doing anything other than that, there's unfortunately, there's kind of a sensation that I'm probably screwing things up. <laughs> okay. By the way, and that's not, a brand, that's not a bad brand name for me to have inside my organization because mm-hmm. everyone's answer then is, is we got to make certain times on the mic, not here checking little punch lists and doing boxes and materials. We got people inside my team who are phenomenal at that. I'm blessed and grateful to have them. But we have to have a division of church and state. So when you got to the point where you said, okay, I'm not going to be the CEO, I'm not going to be the president, I'm not going to be the manager of all the details in running the business, I'm going to be the business. I'm going to be that thought leadership guy. I'm going to lead on the marketing. I'm going to do what I do best. You're now unleashed is that kind of like this, the last part of the secret sauce that gets you up there? It, it, you know, if we took phase one, you are the, you know, you, you yep. create the business and you run the business and you build other products and all the rest of that stuff. And phase two, you bring in someone to run the place. Then the third phase that we're in right now is the double your double scaling. All right. Mm-hmm. We've scaled it up enough that, yeah, we're growing, but to explode, we have to, we have to now deliver through multiple, multiple channels out in the marketplace uh, all of this content with other people, licensee partners, channel partners, uh, international partners to deliver product and value and, and training classes and et cetera. And that's the phase we're in now. All right. So phase one, you can do well. Phase two, by the end, you can probably get to the million. Phase three, that's when you're getting to millions. There you go. Hey, everybody. It's David Newman with another edition of Point Counterpoint. In this segment, let's listen in to Robert Bradford, CSP, and Carolyn Strauss as they unpack the age-old battle, marketing is more important than sales versus sales is more important than marketing. Listen to this one. I have to say that uh, my personal experience comes from really being terrible at selling. And the one thing that I've noticed is that the more I lean into my marketing, the more people call me and 
I'm so bad at closing that I actually even don't call some of them back. But the point I want to make is I get plenty of great gigs from people knowing who I am, wanting what I've got, and calling me and saying, hey, can you give me some of that? All I have to say is yes, there is zero sales skill involved in that. And thank goodness that model works for me. So, Robert, how do you do that? What do you do for marketing? That's what everybody who's listening wants to know because I think that's ridiculous. <laughs> let, me, let me tell you. First of all, I think it's very important to have a lot of material out there that people can find. So you have to be present, visible, findable. In today's world, it's a lot easier to be findable than it was, say, 20 years ago. It's impossible to be heard, though. How do you get findable? You know, if you're a leadership expert, how does somebody find you as opposed to the 500 other people who call themselves leadership experts? Right. I think one of the problems there is people people get, don't get focused enough. If you're just a leadership expert, you're going to be out there duking it out in the marketing arena with people who are going to throw a lot of time and money into building up their presence. They're going to spend more on Google AdWords. They're going to spend more on their website and their social media presence. And that's going to make it very difficult. But if you say I'm a leadership expert for people in the construction industry, those people are going to find you and they're going to say, that's the person I want to talk to. Not the big leadership expert, but the person who says, I know the construction industry and the particular issues you have in my world. So my understanding then is you're putting a lot of stuff out there and hoping. You're, you're in the hope model of, ah, oh, I hope somebody realizes how great I am and they'll call me. Oh, heck no. If you are not getting on the phone, talking to people, let's say you're a leadership person in the construction industry, you need to call the construction associations. You need to find out when their meetings are. You need to call the corporations. You need to get in front of the CEOs. And then you need to say, okay, what do you need? Where are your problems? This is how I can solve them. And by the way, here's our financial arrangement. I mean, you've got to talk about money and calendaring, right? You, you only have what you have to sell is your time and your talent. If two people want your time and your talent on the same day, you then have to choose and say no to one of them. So if you're just throwing stuff out there, hoping the sales will come, Really? Well, first of all, I have to say the best gigs I've ever had, we did have a calendar discussion, but we never discussed the fee. They just assumed that the fee was going to be reasonable. And when they got my bill, they were like, okay, that's the fee. Are you kidding me? I'm you don't not kidding. <laughs> so that's, really? that's what marketing does for you. It gets someone who wants you so much and is so convinced of your value that they don't even ask what it costs. And that is worth a lot of money to me. Okay, so I sell clothing on the Home Shopping Network. If I don't say this two-piece outfit is $49.90, how are they going to buy Okay, you're a guy, right? <laughs> Let's talk about the gender difference. If I go into a store and I go to buy something because I'm needing a dress, let's say, for the gala on Tuesday night, right? So I need a dress. I go in and I go to the store. If I find a dress that I like but there's no price on it, I'm not even going to try it on because I don't know if that's within my budget to buy it. So if I'm not putting my price out there, I'm not talking to people about, here's what my time and attention and information is worth, they're going to just move on because sometimes they might think I'm too much. Sometimes they might think I'm too inexpensive. You cannot sell without some marketing. People have to know who you are and what you do, but you can't just throw stuff out there on the internet, hope people will call you, and then go, okay, I'll show up Wednesday at three o'clock. That's nice. And by the way, 
two weeks later, here's my bill. I don't get it. Well, the key to really good marketing, this is something a lot of people don't get because a lot of people go into marketing, there's fluffy bunnies and they want to be creative, okay? That's not good marketing. Good marketing is coming up with a good idea that makes sense to you, putting it out there and then measuring the results you get back. So, in for example, my marketing of my seminar business, I have over the years sent out millions of pieces of mail, spent millions of dollars. I am not going to do that based on hope. I'm going to do that by saying, hey, I'm going to spend 10 grand here and see what comes back. Measure that. And if it works, I'll do it more. If it doesn't work, I'm going to try something different. So always measure. That's fabulous. Okay. And now let me tell you why what you just said is fabulous. Everything in your life is going to cost you time or money. Mm -hmm. You have already put in the time and the money to send out a million dollars worth of postcards and marketing materials. I don't know in NSA that many people who've done that. I know I haven't. I know that I've done targeted mailing campaigns, but a targeted mailing campaign for me once or twice a year then needs a follow-up phone call, needs a scheduling conversation, needs a money conversation, and needs a closing conversation. So I don't think I don't think you can have one without the other. I don't. And you're just doing marketing. I want to come hang out at your office and see how you do that because I don't see it. I don't see how it can be done. It's, you know, it's just a question of measuring what generates the interest and my ideal, my target when I spend time and money on marketing is I want to get people calling me and saying, oh my God, I love that. Can you do it? And here, here, and usually what I will say is here are the dates I can do it. It's not them saying, hey, can you do it on this date? They say, hey, can you do it on this date? I usually say no. Okay. How long have you been in this business? 25 years. Uh Uh-huh. There you go. So in 15 more years, we'll have this conversation again and see if I agree with you. Right now, if you... You don't know how to sell, you are not going to make a living in this business. You've got to learn how to sell and you've got to learn how to sell yourself. I, I, the one thing I'd argue is if all you're doing is selling, you're out there pushing yourself into a space where people don't know who you are and they won't value you. If you want to get good fees, you have to be out there in the space where they know who you are and they are coming to you. So instead of pushing, they are pulling you into them. You're going to get much better fees if you do that. And that's, you know, that's one reason why, for example, it's very hard to get a bureau to sell me at my fee because if you don't know who, know who I am, my fee makes no sense. So that, you know, it's, it, you know, one of the questions you have to ask yourself is, do you want to play in that world where you're constantly pushing to get a lower fee or do you want to be in a place where you're being pulled in and maybe your sales skill would enable you to get a higher fee than I can because you don't suck at it? See, that's interesting because selling equals pushing. I don't think so. <laughs> selling equals providing value for someone who needs what you offer and you're the one that can deliver it. So So if I'm calling somebody, I find out what they need, when they need it, if I'm the right person to deliver it, and then we have the conversation of how I can solve their problem. That is selling to me. And I think that just putting a whole mess of stuff out there marketing, while very important and everybody needs to be doing it, but without the sales piece, you don't have the closing, which brings in the revenue, which is what allows us to do a million dollars worth of postcard mailing. (laughs) If you don't have money behind you, honey, you you can't run this business. People, it's funny, I'm seeing people getting into the speaking business, lots of them, who think, oh, I have a mouth, I can talk, it's free to get into it, I can do it from my second bedroom, fine, if they're lucky enough to have a second bedroom, right? However, you've got to have money to run a business, and this is a business, and a business without a sale isn't a business. I, I, I would agree 100%. And I think the most effective closing I ever do is, yeah, actually, I can do that. Would you be able to uh, do that meeting on October 18th? 
and that's maybe that's you know that's not very skillful in my world that's and I don't think of it as selling that's me just agreeing yes I'd be happy to do them I think the very most important thing when you are when you are marketing when you're when you're putting yourself out there is to understand that you are saving people time when you talk about the sales process you're talking about and I've, I've tried that sales process it's a lot of time and the people I sell to mostly CEOs don't have that kind of time they don't want to waste five minutes on the phone with me. What they want to do is they want to read an article and say, this is really good stuff. I think I could use this in my company. Give me a call, say, can you do it? And have me say, I can do it on October 18th. That's like two minutes instead of five minutes. And that's worth a lot to my clients. Well, Robert, you are 100% right. It is all about selling. Thank you for agreeing with me. <laughs> Carolyn, I have to say, it's really, I, I, I see your point. It's, it really is all about marketing. Without marketing, you just don't have a leg to stand on with your clients. So thanks for uh, helping me figure that out. You're welcome. Selling is everything. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Marketing is everything. And now let's play. What's your secret IQ? Yes, it's time to quickly quiz you on non-trivial trivia from the speaking slash meeting industry. You will hear a series of multiple choice, fill in the blank, or true or false questions. For every correct answer you make, you are likely superior to several of your NSA colleagues. And remember, in this game, what you don't know probably will hurt you. Number one, according to the Professional Convention Management Association, which country after the U.S. is the most popular for events, determined by the highest number of international meetings in 2010? Is it A, Germany, B, the U.K., or C, China? Hmm? Hmm? And the answer is A, Germany. They had 542 international meetings compared to 399 for the UK and just 282 for China. Number two, the next fill in the blank question is proof that any interesting take on leadership will sell. There actually is a recently released business book, The Leadership Secrets of Blank. How to get big things done in your workshop all year long. And that blank would be the leadership secrets of Santa. That's right. Yeah. Found that one preposterous? Well, then weigh in on the likelihood of this. Number three, true or false? Another recently published book is Toy Box Leadership. Leadership lessons from the toys you loved as a child which feature Mr. Potato Head, Light Bright, and Weebles. You remember them. Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. And the correct answer is true. <laughs> FYI, the Weebles represent endurance. Last one, number four. True or false, is this yet another ostensibly recently published business book? The Leadership Secrets of squirrels. More than 60 acorns of wisdom to make you a better leader every day. And the answer is true. So what does this mean? Corny titles or not, metaphors matter. They are a straight shot to a fast insight. And speed may be the difference between getting booked or not. Our next segment on VUE is Make It Work. This is a tribute to my favorite TV reality show personality, Tim Gunn from Project Runway. Tim is a fashion expert and mentor who meets with stressed out designers halfway through their projects and with advice and encouragement exhorts them to make it work. 
That's what we are doing with this segment, bringing you content mentors in different aspects of running your speaker business. And once again, we are with business and intellectual property lawyer and fellow speaker, Francine Ward. Francine is going to intentionally make us all a bit nervous about our status quo and challenge us to make it work. This time, I, I believe you say we're going to be talking about work for hire, snoozer potential, just saying, and people got work for hire agreements, come on. Why should we really care about this segment? Because let's say, suppose you as a speaker, you hire someone to design your website or to take your photograph or to even write a blog post for you. Sure. The general rule of copyright law says the person that created that is the one who owns it. So even if you spent thousands of dollars having someone design a website for you, they, and not you, own the rights to that work. Okay, that sounds extraordinarily unpleasant. (laughs) So uh, what is the, I guess, what are the magic words that have to be in a work-for-hire agreement for that not to happen? This is a work-made-for-hire. Literally that sentence. Yes. that's, That's definitely the first thing that needs to be included. There are some other things. But you definitely need to have the language. This is a work for hire or a work made for hire. So, so I'm hiring, let's say I'm giving a speech and I'm going to be in Phoenix. Oh, so I'm in Phoenix, Arizona. And I say, hey, does anybody know a good local videographer? Because I want to get some footage here. So, you know, I hire this guy. I pay him 500 bucks. He hands me the hard drive. You know, okay, here's everything on a nice 16 gig USB drive. I leave You're telling me that's not mine. Yes, I am telling you that is not yours. The tangible product is yours, but the rights to that content doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the videographer. Okay. Scary. I I don't know if I'm I'm allowed to say that sucks, but the... But again, so unless I have even paid him the whole deal, unless I have him sign something, he has to actually sign it, you're saying, that that I wrote, this is a work for hire, and I'm sure there's other magic words, but that's the key thing, work for hire, that's actually his. That is his, and that is why, again, I, I really stress that the copyright law, because work made for hire is tied to copyright because it's creation of content. The person who creates, this is the general rule, the person who creates a work of art or authorship owns the rights to that work unless there's a contract that states otherwise or unless it's a work made for hire. Now, uh, let's say I was having, uh, let's say I'm blogging constantly. And so I'm in the car and I say, okay, I, you know, I have one of those portable digital audio devices and I'm recording my thoughts. They're not transcribing it, but I'm saying, here's my basic idea here, pretty much blah, blah, blah. So it's my idea is my concept, but I'm hiring them to, you know, kind of write it out for me. So is that still theirs? Now, here's the trick. Oh, it's tricky the, the, now. the problem gets to be pretty tricky because, okay, it's your content technically, yeah. but they're turning it into a tangible product yeah. and they also probably will edit. So that's that's all the more reason why you need to have a contract because an argument could be made that it's yours because it's your original content. But then you've got this third party coming in there, changing it, modifying it, cleaning it up. They can always say, but wait a second, we've got a joint copyright because Ooh. I did a lot of work too. So to avoid that, you just have a contract, a work made for hire agreement that clearly states you and not they own the rights to your work. All right. Okay, in this uh, work-for-hire agreement, and by the way, yes, you have my attention now. Um, (laughs) All right, so uh, what do you call that? That's called the assignment of rights, or what's your legal gobbledygook for that? The legal term for that contract would be a work-for-hire or work-made-for-hire agreement. That's the contract name. All right. So what are some of the components or some of the things that really need to be in this type of agreement 
that's so we don't have some unpleasant gotchas. Well, one of the first things is you want to make sure that there's an assignment clause. And all that is is specific language that says the person who created the content, the web content, for example, transfers all of their rights over to you, the person who's paying for it. Okay, so that's what it is. So use an example of like, I'm hiring a web designer. Show me how that's really going to help me or prevent bad things from happening to me with like a web designer. Well, it's going to mean the difference between you owning that website completely and the web designer owning that website completely. So the transfer of rights just simply says it's yours. Not only did you pay for it, but the rights have now been totally transferred to you. Okay. And by putting that in, most web designers are going to say, yeah, no problem, or we don't know. Well, they may or may not say. But it's a good conversation to have. Absolutely. But the thing is you want to do it before they start the work because the problem is once they do the work, let's say the web designer designs this fabulous website for you with all the bells and whistles, and you only discover after the fact that you should have had a work made for hire, they can easily say no. So. I'm not transferring this to you. Then, then you have a hassle on your hands. Wow. All right. Okay. So that's so. Now we need a work for hire agreement. We need to say the magic words "work for hire" with All an right. assignment provision with an inside. Assignment provision. What else do we need to make sure is in this type of agreement? You want to make sure there's a confidentiality clause, which basically means that anything this this independent contractor learns from you, whether in a personal conversation or of a business nature, it's kept private. So if I'm a speaker, I'm thinking. I'm talking to a photographer. I mean, I'm talking to a a video person. I mean, why would I care about a confidential class? I mean, how could that possibly hurt me? So let's say you're talking to your photographer, and your photographer's really friendly. And, you know, you're a pretty open person. And before you know it, you're sharing some very intimate details about your life. That after the fact, you realize, oh, my God, I probably shouldn't have said that. Well, without a confidentiality clause in that contract, that photographer can go and share that with the world. You don't want that to happen. You want to keep what, you know, it's kind of like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. You want it to be what happens in your conversation stays in this conversation. Well, now, that part I get. So what do we call this clause again? This is a confidentiality provision. So this is like the Vegas clause. Yeah. All right, what stay, got it. What, what's said here stays here. Okay. Yeah. That's fair enough. All right. Uh, what else do we need in a work for hire agreement? Well, another piece that's really important is you want to make sure that scope is clearly defined. Scope. What, scope. And really, all that is what you're hiring the person to do. So, for example, if you're hiring a web designer, you don't want to just say, I'm hiring you to design my website. You want to be as specific as possible. Let's say, for example, you want 10 pages or 20 pages in that website. You want flash. You want a social media section. You want to be as clear as possible because if you're not, you're going to have an issue down the road with your interpretation versus theirs. All right. So here's where, as a speaker, I'm thinking, oh, come on, Francine, because... Is it, that would be outlined in a proposal that they're going to do, which I'm going to sign their proposal. Now, I can tell by the way you're looking at me, yes, it won't have my other provisions that we just talked about in there. So you're saying that they do a proposal, and if I like it, I use that language in the agreement? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. You could do that. You can take their language, their specific proposal language, and put it in your scope. Yeah. All right, so I've either got to do one of two things. I think you're saying either I have to take their language, which I agree to in their proposal, and put it into my document, or I've got to make sure I've got some of the provisions that I want into something that they wrote that I signed. Yes, but I think it's always better that you have your own contract, because then you're in control. You can include all the provisions that are important to you rather than trying to fix up a contract that they give you, because the truth is... Most contracts that I happen to look at that belong to independent contractors, they've cut and pasted them, and they are horrible. 
They are right. not enforceable. They're horrible. And if they ever had to go to court on those, they'd be in trouble. All right. So the, the smart approach is to take their language from their proposal, if I like it, yes. put it into an agreement that I write and make them sign that, yeah. which I also sign. Absolutely. Before I give them any money. Absolutely. All right. So let's do a quick recap here. So again, do the work for hire. Mm-hmm. And what's the magic phrase we've got to make sure is in the work for hire? Work made for hire or work for hire. All right. And then the first clause? You want to make sure there's an ins- assignment clause which transfers the rights from the web designer or the photographer or whoever that independent contractor is to you, the person who actually paid for the work to be done. All right. And then we had the... Confidentiality. Mm-hmm. You want to make sure that there's a strong confidentiality provision in there so that anything, even inadvertently, if you say something just in conversation while they're doing the work for you. You don't want to hear about it later on Facebook or or in a book, a tell-all book. Gotcha. And the last one, which is scope, which again was making sure that, again, we take the language of what exactly they're doing and put it in the agreement that we do and don't just sign the proposal because then we have no protection. Absolutely. All right. Well, Francine, once again, it's been scary but interesting, and now we know steps that we can actually do in our speaker agreements. So thank you so much. Thanks, Brian. All right, and now stuff speakers should buy. We've got an interesting item here, and this is being explained to us by none other than Jim Cathcart and Robin Creaseman. So, Jim, Robin, what item are we talking about? Flash badge. What is a flash badge? It's a shiny object. It's a shiny object. In other words, it's a thing that will get people's attention. So those of you in VOE land, uh, what Jim and Robin have here, it's basically a lighted, customizable name tag. It's a small plastic light box with a little film that you can have different designs put on it, and the light shines through. So basically, you are like a little uh, lighthouse. With this, you don't start the conversation. They start the conversation. If you have on the flash badge, and let's say you're wearing it on your lapel or you've got it attached to you in some way, people will notice it because they can't not notice it. It's lit up. And if you have a provocative saying or statement or visual on it, then they're going to reach over and touch it and start the conversation with you, you're in. Yeah, it's cool, man. I mean, like a lighted billboard. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. a lighted billboard. You can either wear it around your neck or you can put it on your lapel or something. And I'm a big believer of standing out in the crowd, stand out like a rock star. You know, it's my message. And this is one way that gets attention. And Jim said it's a, it's a conversation starter. But everyone's got the same name tag on normally at a convention. And so you just blend in. I've had at this convention probably 45, 50 people that have stopped me and said, wow, dude, what is that? That is so, so cool. Yeah. And they start looking at it. Of course, my name's on there, my brand, my company, everything. Where did you get that? What is that? Well, it's flashbag.com. It's a, it's, it's a way to stand out and, and get people's attention. And it's immediately a conversation starter. It separates you know, you from the rest. And um, it's just a great, great way to uh, capture people's cool. attention. And how much would something like this cost approximately they're about 75 bucks i mean 75 what bucks, a okay. killer deal no, no kidding and you it's know? not 75 bucks for just a little badge i mean you've got the badge that has it can be used as a table tent you can use it as a place marker it, by the way i would for a corporate uh, board or something like that i would buy this for all the members and have it on the on the table there so it's almost like and, a little yeah, lighted so, yeah a little lighted thing, table yeah. tent and and uh, you can use that or you can use it for VIPs if you're putting somebody at a at a uh, table at a convention and you want to stimulate conversation this is Brian's table this is Robin's table this is Jim's table you put these for your table chair so to speak uh, you know uh, on each table people walk by they say oh that uh, I wanted to talk to him or her and so they sit down at that table so you can use it in a number of creative ways like that 
But also it's got a little carrying case with it. It's got tools so that you can adjust and, and adapt it. You can make your own acetates to change the insert so that it's got a different message on it from time to time. That's pretty cool. Pretty cool. Yeah. Flash badge. Rock on, baby. Stuff speakers should buy Postscript. If you actually wanted to see what the heck this flash badge was, go to theflashbadge.com. And now we reach into the VOE vault to bring back a classic format. I blew it, I knew it, and what I learned through it. Originally created by NSA member June Klein, in this format, brave volunteers openly share professional mistakes, lapses, errors in judgment, or just plain dumb actions. And why are we featuring this? Because everyone's favorite kind of pain is vicarious pain. Plus, when we're done laughing, we just may be able to avoid similar professional potholes when one is in our path. This month on I Blew It, I Knew It, and What I Learned Through It, we are with Eileen McDar. She is a CSP and CPAE and has been speaking, consulting, and facilitating since 1980. Her business is about creating conversations that matter and connections that count. So, Eileen, how did you blow it? My first book had been out for about a year and a half called Work for a Living and Still Be Free to Live. It was the first book ever published as far as we can figure out on work-life balance. This very prestigious, huge law firm in the Bay Area called me wanting to know could I come and take the place of a speaker who was snowed in in Europe and couldn't come. This was a big deal. I will not use the name of the law firm. I was very excited. I know I can speak on this topic. Now, in the back of my mind, I also knew, even though I only had two days, that I really wanted to talk to the managing partner about this whole topic. He was not available. I didn't listen to my instincts. I flew up to the Bay Area, and here I literally have a couple hundred attorneys and their spouses in the Monterey Bay Aquarium. That night, I'm trying to talk to them. They're very reticent to talk to me. Never saw the managing partner. In conversation with one attorney and his wife, I found out that he was supporting her while she went back to school, and when she finished, she was going to support him so he could get further education. Just bear that in mind. So the morning arrives, it's the afternoon, it's lunch, I'm supposed to speak. I did not ask where specifically we were doing the lunch. Unfortunately, we were doing it outside. Outside in a garden, where there was no place for me to stand other than literally to climb up on a flower garden wall that had about mm, six inches worth of space because I can't be seen. So as I begin to speak, a number of things are happening. Number one, they are looking at me shell-shocked. Where they normally would laugh, they weren't. And I'm thinking something is horribly wrong. What I came to find out was that I was a shill for the law firm. They had no intention of creating work-life balance. This is live and die by the almighty billable hour. You want to get a life au contraire. We will not let you have it. So nobody believed me. I'm in the sun outside. Number one, they couldn't. Number two, they couldn't hear me. And number three, as an example of how do we integrate our work and life, I told the story of the attorney and his wife whom I had met the night before and how they were going to trade off to support each other. When I was finished, that attorney came up to me furious because he had told no one in the law firm what his future intentions would be. I didn't ask his permission to tell that story. I will never do that again. So those are the three lessons. Follow your instincts. 
don't take work just because it's available and it sounds easy and you think you can do it. My instinct said to speak to that managing partner, and I should have. Number two, find out physically where you're going to speak. I will never speak outside again. And number three, ask for permission, even for the smallest thing, if you want to share it from the platform. Our next segment is a really deep dive into some really high-level content. We follow a colleague's journey as she goes from making mini presentations to fill seminars for other speakers to building the biz of an online empire based on hundreds of her own topics. Maybe you've got the content to emulate her new business model. Maybe not. But follow her thought process as she responded to a client-driven opportunity in a really big way. All right, more on building the biz. Now we're with Lorna Riley CSP. Now, Lorna is like many of us, a speaker on sales, customer service, leadership. I don't know why you didn't add change because then you'd have like everything. Oh, it's in there. there. (laughs) I had to be discreet. (laughs) But here's the difference. Unlike all of us, uh, Lorna didn't just speak on these topics. She actually built a company, Chart Learning Solutions, which is in essence, as far as I can tell by checking your website and talking with others, an e-learning empire that we would all like to uh, emulate. Do I have that right? Well, partially. Partially. I nailed it partially. Uh, Yes. Well, let's go back to the word e-learning because the the word itself got a really bad rap because a lot of people were putting PDFs up on the internet and calling it Mm e-learning. So over the years, it's evolved into what's called on-demand learning. Sounds like HBO or Comcast. It does sound pretty snazzy, doesn't it? Well, it has a a better cachet, if you will, because now people are thinking, it's there when I want it, in the same way that you would download a Netflix. So the learning is there in the same way. It happens to sit on the internet. So let me rephrase that. Uh, She has built an (laughs) on-demand empire that we would like to emulate here. So all we ask is you be incredibly scintillating, (laughs) incredibly interesting and humorous, and give us stuff that we can instantly use to make hundreds of thousands of Not too much pressure. Okay, but but it's all doable. Absolutely. So let me begin at the beginning. About 25 years ago, when Mm -hmm. I was asking for what should I do with the rest of my life, and I decided to go do the thing that would be hardest for me, and that would be public speaking. I used to think it's public speaking is one of the greatest unthinkable thoughts. Cannibalism, incest, public speaking, all in the same category. Wow. I've not heard that comparison before. Oh, yeah. It was right up there. And I decided it was a way for me to overcome some innate weaknesses that I had. And I joined up with a sales training company. And my job is to go into organizations and do a free mini 30-minute seminar. And if people like what they would hear, they would sign up for this other guy's full-day public seminar. Mm -hmm. It was a business model that actually worked to fill a room. So after a period of time, there becomes a big disconnect between who you are and the person you're repping for. I, I went off on my own to provide my own style. And in the public seminar, that went on for about six years. I didn't even know NSA existed. I was in my little world. I spoke every single day. I had public seminars. The room was full. But then one day, somebody said, could you do a customized program for us? And that launched me into doing customized programs for companies. I would go in. It was more of a training venue. Mm-hmm. And... I started to use what I would call logical language. I would literally lean into the manager and I'd say, do you really want this to work? What are you trying to accomplish out of this? And I 
that sounds pretty silly, but but I was curious to know because you can just show up and do your thing and go home and everybody's done, somebody gets paid and it's over. After a period of time doing the customized program, somebody said, you ought to join and I say, which I did. And that got me introduced into words like meeting planners and bureaus and conventions and keynotes and working with bureaus and getting the press kit together. And so the journey then led me into getting on an airplane and leaving the greater Southern California area. So I did this to, to push myself to see what was around the corner on the other side because I'm always curious to know where the business can go next. And that got me into thinking about back of the room product, which I'd also started to do for the public seminar. So the first time I decided to create product was at the public seminar and I had these forms. I had not created any tapes or CDs. Mm-hmm. I had nothing. I decided we we're going to record it. And I brought a bill out form, people could sign up. And before we even started, people were filling it out. And I said, gulp. You know, now I'm really committed. I have to have this recorded. So you, so you were taking orders for something that didn't exist yet. That's right. That's that's my style. So sell it and I will build it and come. Yeah, if you build it, maybe they'll buy. But in this case, it looked like they were buying. So that committed me to really doing a good job on the recording and then cleaning it up and then presenting it and selling it. I enjoyed a nice ride working with bureaus. Referrals were a big part of it. I found myself becoming a generalist, not by design, but by default. And it's because I ran into a a few clients that said, we really like your style. Can you come back and do something on team building? And I'd say, well, actually, I don't have anything on team building. And they'd say, well, go home and write it and come back and do it. Now, that served me very well when one day I had done three keynotes, booked through a bureau, and I was hired to talk to their user groups. And it was pretty evident that these were angry mobs. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's like, let's oh, give her them. Maybe that'll no, satisfy no. them. Okay. I heard somebody to come in. Here's a victim. Just, Pump them full of jokes and stories and tell them how great customer service is going to be from this point on. And I get a little nervous about the the breach of integrity there because I knew I'd never see these people again. But out of curiosity again. From speaker to mercenary. (laughs) Yes. So I went to the president afterwards and I said, okay, Tom, what are you really doing to support this initiative? Because I'm a little worried about the faces I saw out there, and I know that this is a pretty steep hill you're about to climb. He said, I don't know. We just hired a new HR director. Why don't the two of you sit down and make a plan? So I went to Tampa. We took out a whiteboard and spent the day creating an entire game plan of how we were going to train customer service, the managers, salespeople. And by the end of the day, it looked like a giant NFL playbook. Now, a lot of speakers slash trainers would run from this opportunity thinking, I don't want to take this on. It looks more like a consulting job. Mm -hmm. But no, I still considered it as an extended speech slash training venue. And I showed her, I plunked down this giant three-inch binder of these programs that I'd been working on, paper-based, I called snap-ons at the time. Snap-ons. Yes, because at that time we had three-ring binders and they made this snapping noise and I would create them in modules. So it was kind of self-contained and I could actually sell these if a company wanted to be able to do this on their own. So was busy doing this, the snap-ons, because one of my clients had asked me back 150 times. So this is a good client. This is a very good client. I'd like you to introduce me to them after this <laughs> interview is over. 
Okay. But that that really took me into becoming the generalist that I did become. So when you ask me how many topics do I have, I could say 300, and that is the truth. Could I show up and do critical thinking and ethics? Yes. Are they my main topics? Do I promote them? No. So you're, you're like the anti-niche. Yeah, exactly. If you really want to become an expert in sales, you need to know about 30 different ways to leverage that topic. Same thing in communication or time management. These things can be leveraged into many subtopics that are juicy morsels for any client to have. So when she said, gosh, we'd love you to train our employees. We really need this. We're desperate. You saw the user groups. She said, but we have 4,000 employees. So you're going to have to, quote, put your stuff online. Pause. That was the moment when you went, oh my gosh, a big shift is about to happen in my professional life. You got that right. And it was driven, not by you, but pretty much forced upon you by the client. (laughs) That's right. Okay. And I decided to make that next leap because I could see where things were going. Now, this was about four and a half years ago. And I just want to share my own philosophy that three things have happened to change the speaking business forever. Forever. And the bureau business forever. Now, number one, 9-11. Suddenly, everything that we knew of was being called into question. Travel, safety, meetings, you name it. Secondly, the collapse of the economy. And suddenly, budgets were disappearing. Jobs were being lost. Meetings were cut. No speakers were being hired, or very, very few. And then finally, advances in technology. And they all kind of happened around the same time to create this ratatouille of what the future would look like. So I saw that and I said, better best get on this bandwagon because if you are going to continue in this business, you need to be able to offer additional options besides just showing up and doing something. And even offer product in the back of the room where there's gonna be your books and CDs. I mean, that's fine and it's wonderful. You make a wonderful living doing that. But when I said, yes, I would do that, That started the next phase of the journey. Aside from the public seminar, aside from doing on-site training, aside from running around and doing keynotes and working from bureaus, the next shift was spending an entire year really examining what that answer would be to why training doesn't work. And I say specifically training because even though someone's doing a keynote, in some ways, they are leaving some piece of content behind, some memorable aha to say, I hope that I've just taught or reinforced something and polished it off so that it's now in the front of your mind rather than the back of your mind in some storage bank. Being that our job is to leave people a little bit more aware than when you first came into the room, I said, I'm going to do this. And I spent that year researching different types of software and what's called learning management systems, LMSs, because a learning management system is the platform that will sit on the internet and hold your content. Could you put a hyperlink and PDFs on your website and call it e-learning? Sure. If you want to be lame. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it's not also a big moneymaker. I mean, you've had thousands of them, sure. And you had a lot of loyal, dedicated people, sure. Some people have sold their white papers. That's great. When I, when I say on-demand learning, I'm talking about a flash-driven 
tutorial, and that is the vernacular that's used in the industry. A tutorial is, and I would say if you're going to create this and go down this path, make them 5, 10, or 15 minutes and not any longer because people really don't have any blocks of time to go much beyond that, even though whatever software you choose may have a bookmarking capability in it, and they have wonderful players out there. And you can Google software for e-learning or on-demand learning, and you will find many, many different choices. And it's a matter of personal taste Mm -hmm. as to what style of a player you're going to buy. And you buy the software, and you're thinking, now what do I do? I've got the software that I really like. Now what? Well, you've got to write a script. (laughs) And the script Mm -hmm. is going to be... And I'll tell you what I did. Again, when I'm creating these topics, I took out blank pieces of paper and saying, I'm going to create three separate libraries. One in sales, because that's where I got started training my audiences. Number two, customer service, because that's a very close relationship. And number three, I wanted to work with management, so it had to be leadership. So sales, customer service, and leadership, so I would have an enterprise-wide solution. And that way, I could go into an organization. I could start through the sales door, and I'd say, how are we going to integrate this with the rest of the organization so that everyone is working with a common language and a common process. Because when you start asking those questions and you're really looking at what problems do I create Mm -hmm. with the solutions I deliver, Mm -hmm. if you're isolating one group and you're only doing team building with one group, how does that really affect synergistically or systemically the rest of the organization. So if you really want to go in and make an impact and have some lasting value there, start opening up the visors and looking at a bigger solution because you certainly can do it. So I've created everything around what I call a continuous learning cycle. That is the chart of chart learning solutions. Happens to be a spiral. Which represents never-ending income stream for Lorna. Ah, yes. I hadn't even thought of it that way. But it is the never-ending stream of continuous improvement. Sure. So when I'm talking to people, and I would just make a blanket statement out there, do whatever you can to avoid the HR department. And I say that (laughs) lovingly because these are extremely nice people. Who don't have budgets. They don't have budgets. They don't have the power, the economic financial buying power to pull the trigger and say yes. Usually they're in a very reactive mode and they wait for a VP of sales or the head of the customer service department or a, a C-level person to come to them and say, they say, we need such and so. And then they'll scramble to find someone to provide that. But when it comes to actually making a decision and moving at the pace with which you would like, mm-hmm. they're very, very slow to make decisions, if at all. So I will bring them in later on, but I'm, I'm going to try to reach out to the C-suite. Mm-hmm. I usually head for a VP of sales, and this is something I've encouraged other NSA members in the past is, I don't care what your topic is, whether it's writing, assertiveness, whatever it is, there's some kind of application for a sales group. If you go into that sales group first, you will generate business because they can always show an ROI. Any company can justify investments in a sales team because they'll see a return on that. Well, they will not on other types of 
groups within the organization. So I finally found the right LMS for me and I bought what I would call a tricycle. I bought a lifetime license, which meant I could own it and I could have an IT team that came with it and I would simply call them and I would say, can you make it do this? Because I had a vision of where I wanted to go with this. I didn't want my system to be another click and test. And what I mean by click and test is someone clicks on a tutorial, they take a quiz and a score goes off to somebody somewhere. Okay. Click you, and, you did not want that. I didn't want that. No, 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 no. Because it doesn't tell you anything about what the person really knows or if they're applying it in the field or if they can actually talk about it. So mine was going to be an accountability system. That was something that I always found people were asking for. They wanted coaching. I said, okay, I'll dump that in there. I'll build a coaching element, live coaching, accountability. There had to be a leadership component. There had to be a keeping in touch component so that this wouldn't be a one-off. It would be an ongoing system. So I decided to create a two-year subscription for the sales library. A skill of the month club. So each month. Did you call it that? Skill of the month club? Yeah, I did. And they said, ooh, I like that. Skill of the month club. They're going to eat for 24 months. Okay. <laughs> All you can eat for 24 months. All right. And we understand you have different tracks so you can sell this enterprise solution to people who can give you tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's correct. You likey, likey, likey. So let's let's now kind of go back to the macro level and how yes. does the client buy this? In other words, yeah. uh, so when you come to them and you said, I have this whole system that's going to do this. You've already explained that a C-level person is the one because it's a cha-ching. This is not a cheap thing that you're selling. Mm, that's right. Okay. <laughs> well, I decided that. I mean, truly... It's a premium product. The price point on on-demand learning is still all over the map. Mm-hmm. So you, you've got to put your pinpoint down somewhere. And in looking at some of the biggest players that have open subscriptions to the public, I just decided on a price point that I thought was fair. Mm-hmm. And I was also looking what ASTD was considering an average price point for employee development per year. Okay. And I cobbled all that together and came up with a price point per unit. So when I justify the investment that an organization makes mm-hmm. for this system, I give them my rationale. I say, well, it show, research shows that the industry not for an hour's worth of learning, it's X. And then when you add all of those units together, you coming up with whatever that's going to be for the full day workshop. And then I would say, this is a subscription-based system. They, they get to eat all they want for two years. They love the idea, thank God, our learning is taken care of for two years. Customer service is two years. Leadership is one year. And they love seeing the learning path of look at all this stuff that I get on demand. When it's convenient for me, at home, on vacation, whenever they want. So it's astounding to see the budgets that are out there if people just are willing to unplug from the meeting industry for a moment mm-hmm. and go into another part of the organization. Because very often this will evolve from uh, an on-site presentation of any duration, whether it's mm-hmm. an hour or more. And you go back to that organization. Let's just go back to the meeting planner. And you say, I'd like to have a conversation with, now wherever your track is, let's go back to the sales department, with your VP of sales to show how this can be extended and augmented in your organization for bigger impact and cultural change. Now, they'll love you forever because this is really what they were hoping for is that they want to make a difference too, but they don't know how to do it. All they do is hire a speaker to come in and the speaker goes home and they're hoping that there's been some residual impact. 
So if you are asking and going back to that meeting planner for the name of the person you would talk to to have this conversation, then that conversation evolves into tell me a little bit about your organization, what are the challenges you're having, the typical qualification questions. And I had prepared two pages of content for the sales library, two pages of content for the service library, and these are the names of the units. Mm-hmm. So they're short. They, they can fit on these. They're not long, wordy things. You can see in a little snapshot glance what that organization is going to get for their subscription. Now, this has taken me four and a half years. I have a little bit of tendonitis from a lot of typing. Even though I have people that help me, I have my voiceovers, I've got the sound studio, I've got other people that actually cobble the MP3s and the images and the script and all of that stuff together. Mm-hmm. And I've got an IT team. I only pay them as I need them. Mm-hmm. So nobody's on staff, which is great. So this is the part I want to emphasize for yeah. everyone listening here. Yeah. Uh, this wasn't something that you anticipated yeah. doing until your client forced the idea upon you. Yes, they really did. And this is uh, not like in the early 90s. This was no. like four years ago. That's right. And they said, you know, it's true. If you build it, they will buy. But I didn't have it built, nor, did, nor would I have ever done it had I not been told, we will buy this from you if you have it. I decided... To fund it, I was not going to go and get investors. Everyone I had talked to said, don't get an investor. They will own you. Uh So I said, all right, I'm going to fund this myself. And I decided to do that by allowing these early organizations, the early adapters, and I told them, this doesn't even exist. Uh You're looking at a blank piece of paper here. None of this stuff is online. They said, it doesn't matter. We want you to develop these in the order in which we would prefer. So they Uh got a lot of preferential treatment. So instead of getting investors, you got partners with clients who populated exactly and i've encouraged other speakers i've talked to about this get your stuff up online and get a buyer take your favorite client who loves you to pieces and they want more of you and sit down and partner with them to ask what they would like and also getting permission to be able to leverage this out so you can resell and resell so uh, let me just say for the for the general population here that you can earn from one sale what it might would have taken you a year or two in the speaking industry Mm-hmm. And I'm saying, great, now when when I decide to retire from the business, I'll be able to do more than just walk out of my office and turn out the light. So what you've done is gone from online That's right. to the bottom line. <laughs> you've got it. So when I look at the difference between getting on and off an airplane and the size of those checks that are coming in from the on-demand learning, there is no contest. Welcome to another new format, Speed Interview. In Speed Interview, we ask a series of random, unrehearsed, unrelated questions to a speaker who was featured earlier in a different segment in this month's VOE. The goal is to get a quick sense of what they're thinking and doing in their business right now. This month, we are Speed Interviewing Robert Bradford. Speed Interview, go, go, go. Robert, first question here. What new product or service will you or can you develop over the next year? I don't think I'm going to develop any new products or services this year. We've, we've got a lot of them in the, in the cooker right now. We've been doing, for example, webinars. And mm-hmm. I, think, I think this year is probably the year that's going to become a much bigger part of our revenue stream and our client generation process. So it's really more of implementing what you've already come up with. Right. Yeah. We were just dabbling in it the past mm-hmm. couple of years. What is something in your business or in your niche that has surprised you in recent months or years? One of the things that surprised me in recent years is how 
much. Having performance in a specific industry will get me a lot of interest and a lot of business within a, one industry. And I used to avoid that because I don't like working with companies that compete with each other. Um, but in some industries, such as the machine tool industry, you know, I can I can work with six or seven different companies and we don't run into each other. So that's interesting to me that that's mm-hmm. starting to happen a lot more than it used to. Uh, when you hear the words virtual delivery, what comes to mind? Uh, definitely online stuff using Skype, using webinars. Uh, I use GoToMeeting a lot, and uh, it's uh, you know the tools are there and they're all good. And I've been leaning into them a lot more heavily because I like to spend less time on planes. Which one is looking most promising to you for delivering Robert Bradford in a virtual way? I really like uh, GoToWebinar and GoToMeeting mm-hmm. because they allow me to actually work live with a client document what we're talking about, take their answers to my questions, take the points that I'm making and and organize them, and hand the client a document that says, this is what we talked about after I'm done speaking. Uh, When you talk about expressing things uniquely, uh, what what shift happened or what, what leap did you make that allowed you to be a decent speaker to be a much more than decent speaker? I think one the biggest leap actually was when I took uh, some classes in doing improv comedy. And mm. the thing I learned was that audiences get bored by certain things, but there are certain things they just love to see. Uh, they get bored by something that is expected. They love to see things that are unexpected. When you are speaking, they get bored if you do the safe thing. They love it if they think you're either going to hurt yourself or make a fool of yourself. Um, and it might make the meeting planner a little nervous, <laughs> but man, the audience is like, oh, this is, this is way better than that last guy. Um, and so in expressing myself uniquely, and this is true of my marketing material as well, uh, I've tended in the past couple of years to lean a little bit towards saying things that are a little outlandish, a little, uh, a little thought-provoking, and maybe make someone initially think, hey, that's wrong, and they're going to read more just to see, like, am I a fool or do I actually know something? So, and I hope the answer is I actually know something. Mm-hmm. But if not, they're reading. Yeah, and then they'll laugh because I'm a fool, I guess. Mm -hmm. Or actually, it's not even mutually exclusive. That's right. They could laugh and I could be smart. You could be be smart and be a fool. All right, cool. And now here's our president's message with NSA National President Laura Stack. The Influence 11 convention is several months behind us now. And my entire meeting team is in the midst of creating some incredible educational experiences for you. After all, isn't education what you think of most when you think of NSA conventions, conferences, and labs? Interestingly, not all members go to NSA meetings just for the education. In fact, I was emailing recently with my presidential board appointee, CSP, CPAE, Joe Calloway, who reminded me why NSA is so important to him and what differentiates it from every other professional association. He said, quote, it's the willingness of successful members to give away absolutely every secret they've got in terms of what works and the close friendships that develop among competitors in this business, end quote. I couldn't agree more. As I said in my presidential acceptance speech in Anaheim last summer, I believe NSA is the magic kingdom. Our members share trade secrets with other members in the spirit of creating better opportunities for speakers all around the world. That is the spirit of NSA. 
often called the spirit of Cavett, after our founder, Cavett Robert. This spirit of sharing and caring is magic. It is NSA. And NSA is community. Joe Calloway continued in his letter, quote, I know there's great emphasis, as there should be, on the educational and career development aspects of NSA. But as I talk to senior members in anticipation of my year on the board, I'm hearing so many of them say that the greatest benefit they get from NSA is the community, not the what's your million dollar idea type, but purely the social aspect Some will say that's not a substantive benefit, but I beg to disagree. Many senior members go to NSA because that's where they get to see their speaker buddies. And it is where they get value. It's not an extra. It's real value to many of us, and we can't get it anywhere else. End quote. I completely agree with Joe. And in fact, we'll be providing many opportunities like this for you to connect with and learn from your colleagues in the months to come. I've asked Alan Weiss to coordinate an elite retreat in December in Key Biscayne, Florida. This one will be just for the community of members grossing over a half million in their businesses, limited to 30 people. Then in February, Bill Stainton and Ruby Newell-Legner are going to help you monetize your message at the Winter Conference in Dallas, Texas. Then in April, Suzanne Bates and Mike Staver will develop a special marketing lab called Cha-Ching, limited to 80 people, to help you develop speaking streams of revenue. And it's all taught by you. Our community, our NSA. Thank you for coming on this mission with me this year as a professional speaker to serve your audiences and use your words to inspire people and move them to action. Audiences need your eloquence and your expertise during this difficult time. Light the fire in their hearts. In your businesses, get excited again about speaking. Remember what drove you to start this business in the first place. Put your mouth, your heart, and your effort behind what you're saying. And at NSA, each of you has a role to play in making NSA stronger for all of us and to continue to thrive. So get involved. Support your board members. Go to your local chapter meeting and give back to the important work that we're doing here. Together, we can create education and community opportunities that equally excite our legacy speakers and inspire emerging speakers. Each month, VU Week closes with a special segment called VO Me. That's basically commentary by me about some aspect of platform skills, marketing, or just something that strikes my fancy. Today, the topic is being a poser. 
Now imagine an audience is watching a speaker and a slide comes on screen. It is a large triangle with words at five levels, including love, esteem, and self-actualization. Now, how would most speakers or trainers set up that slide? Something like this, right? This is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It is a psychological theory of human motivation developed by social scientist Abraham Maslow in 1943. Blah, 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 blah. Pretty typical, right? Zero audience engagement, zero emotional connection. However, we can change all of that simply by being a poser. Just say, so, what is this? And wait. As a poser, the technique you are employing is to pose a question that generates a completely spontaneous reaction that you can then react to. A lot of people in your audience recognize the hierarchy of needs, so when you ask what it is, they aren't able to contain themselves. If you pause, someone will blurt out the answer eventually. Right there, that's engagement. But in actuality, the advanced part of this technique kicks in when you use that as a jumping off point. It's not enough to nod or say, yes, uh, whomever said that is right. You ask their name and acknowledge him or her in front of everyone. Let them bask for a moment in the warm glow of being the smartest or quickest person in the room. This is now your go-to person. You have their name. Throughout the rest of your speech or your class, you check in with them. You then keep being a poser. You can even up the stakes by being a big poser. This happens when you pose more difficult questions to your audience, but give out hints until someone finally blurts out the right answer. Through these kinds of questions and spontaneous answers, you pick up more names throughout your speech. Just about everyone will want to get in on that level of attention, so they actively engage. And after an hour, you have multiple allies in your audience. You have thus achieved your goal of transforming recipients into participants. Simply by being a poser. Well, that's it for this month. Keep the conversation going by visiting NSA VUE on Facebook. We'll talk again in November. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Редактор субтитров А.Семкин Корректор А.Егорова